friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church Podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. of Advent, we exercise the discipline of waiting on the arrival of God with eager anticipation. Before Christ's coming, the world was weary from sin and corruption. The world awaited an intervention from God, hoping to be liberated and reclaimed. A cosmic question hung in the balance. Will he do something about this darkness? And the answer confirmed by the multitudes of heavenly hosts on that holy night was a resounding yes. God himself came. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. That thrill of hope sent shockwaves throughout all creation. And the darkness that once held a grip on the world was put on notice that its reign had come to an end. God did not perform some mighty work from on high, but he came into our space and became like one of us to redeem all things back unto himself. This is why we celebrate Advent and practice waiting upon the Lord so that we may remember what he did and be reminded that he is coming again in power, for he is faithful and true. Since Mary answered Gabriel, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. A light has dawned upon the world. This light grew within her and was birthed in obscurity, and the world has never been the same since. It is true, a great light has dawned upon us, and one day we will be fully consumed by that light, and he will be all in all. Amen? The prophet Isaiah spoke of this light in Isaiah 6, 9 says this, for a child is born to us, a son given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The light the prophet wrote of was a messianic character, one such as the warrior King David. This son of David would be called Mighty God, which means something really cool because the rest of these, uh, there's kind of some contention amongst scholars of, is this Isaiah passage actually speaking about Jesus? Because how could they possibly know he's divine? Well, how we know it's speaking about Jesus is that this man, this one that will be like David, will be called Mighty God himself. The other three, sure, could be a great military leader, but mighty God himself, the one who comes, God himself coming and doing the work that only God can do. Only Jesus can do that. And we know this man to be Jesus. For the nerds in here, if you want to read more about that, there's a book called God's Messiah in the Old Testament by Abernathy and Goswell. I don't know their first names, but they're probably white. Um, And uh, it's a good book. That was a bad joke, man. Sheesh. <laughs> Thought we'd get more of a response there. Abernathy? Come on. So Jesus, mighty God, how does he live into this name, this title? Luke 4 is a great place to start this exploration. 
Luke 4, 18 through 19 says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. After reading that, Jesus says, uh, what the prophet Isaiah was talking about, because he's actually quoting Isaiah 61, uh, what the prophet had been talking about had been fulfilled that day in their midst. And in Luke's gospel, this is the launching point of Jesus' ministry and pushing back against darkness. The way Luke structures his gospel is interesting. It starts out with him being born and living in obscurity. We don't know much. We know that he gets left by his parents at the temple. Any parents ever left a kid behind? Man. Kids, have you ever been left behind by your parents? A bunch of liars in here. Sheesh. Golly. We're in church and you're lying. He was born and lived in obscurity for 30 years. We really only know of that one temple experience. Uh, he was baptized by John. He was affirmed by his father in heaven right after that. He was full of the spirit. And then he goes into the desert for 40 days and he battles Satan and wins says that Satan had to flee until another time arose. And so now, Luke 4, this gives us, uh, this is when Jesus is beginning to preach this message. Uh, Jesus' ministry begins, and it's with this ministry, or with this ministry is the proclamation of some very good news for the world. And so now we're going to nerd out. Anybody want to say this out loud? Jonathan. You and Gellion. Say it. You... In Gel Yon. Yungelion. This means good news. This is good news. This is how we get the word evangelism. Proclaiming something that is good. Thus, the good news that Jesus proclaimed at the launch of his ministry is essentially, I have come to set the wrong things right. That's the message he preached. And he never changed his message. No matter where he went, he began with that. I've come to set the wrong things right. Jesus lived out what he preached too. He came with strategic demonstrations of God's power to show in the natural what was inevitably happening in the supernatural, which takes us to Luke 11, 20 through 22. But if I'm cast, he's, he's responding to Pharisees, okay? This is when they're like, you cast out demons by the power of Satan. He's like, makes no sense whatsoever. He finishes that, that uh, back and forth with the religious leaders saying this, but if I am casting out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. For when a strong man is fully armed and guards his palace, his possessions are safe until someone even stronger attacks and overpowers him, strips him of his weapons, and carries off his belongings. Jesus was not only announcing his coming meant the stripping of Satan's power, but he was performing mighty actions against Satan himself, taking back what was rightfully his. And what's interesting about this word mighty in scripture is it's usually accompanied by something only God can do. I'm not going to read it here. I was going back and forth if I was. Read Exodus 15 today. The song of Moses. About how they, they worship this mighty God because he had come to his people who had been enslaved for 400, 500 years. I actually can't remember off the top of my head. A lot of years. And 
takes him out to the sea, splits the sea. Pharaoh and his chariots come in. Waters crash in. The enemy's defeated. Israel is liberated. And they burst out into song, like a musical or something. But it's cool. Only God can do that. And so a lot of the praise that we find in the Bible is a response to something that God has done that only God can do. And thinking about Jesus being our mighty God, we examine his ministry and we find three things that I think are of interest. The first one is Jesus was at war against religious burdening. I would also add to this idea of religious burdening, I would say any man-made structure or institution that elevates some at the behest of many. Luke 5, 29-31 says this. I don't actually have it up there. Later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Levi is also uh, the disciple Matthew, for, for those who are wondering. And I love that he made Jesus the guest of honor. He gets called to be a disciple, and he's like, I'm going to throw you the coolest party ever. And Jesus is like, deal. Absolutely. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. But the Pharisees and their teachers of the religious law complained bitterly to who? To Jesus. No. They complained to his disciples. They didn't even have the gall to confront Jesus on what he was doing. They go to his disciples. I don't know why they do that. I don't know why that's a detail. Are they throwing like seeds of like discontentment amongst the disciples? Be like, hey, you guys are doing this. Get out while you can. I imagine it's like, yeah, we're not going there. But um, the Pharisees, uh, they complain bitterly to Jesus' disciples and they ask him this question. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? That's the NLT, but it hits. Why do you eat with such scum? Jesus answered them. I love it. We're talking to the disciples, and Jesus is like, hold on, I'll answer that. You guys don't answer because you'll have a terrible answer. I need Jesus to do that more in my life. He's like, hold on, I'll answer this for you. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And listen to this. This convicted me as I read it this week. I've not come... I have come not to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. The mighty warrior has come to the defense of the defenseless. He will not defend those who think they can defend themselves. Religion tells us to fight our own battles, Jesus reminds us that it is good for those whose trust is in the Lord to wait on him faithfully. Said another way, his mightiness is leveraged for those who are mightyless. And the good news there is that we have an advocate on our behalf who fights and who wins. Number two, Jesus was at war against Satan and the powers of darkness. Two quick verses here that, uh, that, that illuminate this, this truth is 1 John 3.8, but the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Another is the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. 
I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's John 10.10. And something really quick here. If the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy... I cannot say steal, kill, steal, kill. (laughs) If the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, the mighty warrior God fights to redeem, resurrect, and restore all things to himself. He has destroyed the former ways of darkness and brought those who belong to him into his kingdom of light. And one of my favorite things, when you look at Jesus in his gospel, he's never on his heels. He's always moving forward. He's always doing what the Father's asking him to do. He's never out of control. And so when we think about this fruit of the Spirit being self-control, self-discipline, I think a better word for that is being fully dependent upon the Father. What He does, I do. And I'm operating within that control. Because what my dad wants, my dad gets. This leads us into our last quick point about these three things in Jesus' ministry. It proves this. Jesus was establishing a new way of living. I'm going to nerd out on Rome real quick. My wife's not here. She did this, the whole, there's a TikTok thing, I guess, where it's like, how much do you think of the Roman Empire? (laughs) She asked me that question, and I was like, what are you doing? Because that's the dumbest question I've ever heard in my life. so random, out of the blue, and she's like, no, you got to answer it. I'm like, I don't know, and I undersold. I was like, every other day, probably. (laughs) And she was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) And I'm glad I said every other day, because I think about it every day. (laughs) You can't be like a New Testament, you can't be in like this school for the New Testament and not think about the Roman Empire, but like aqueducts, that's crazy, (laughs) right? It's nuts. Rome was, Rome was cool. It was awful, but it was cool. It was like, it, it, it shows you the, the amazing things humanity can do, and it shows you the brutality of empires. But we're going to focus on a new way of living. Come back, Chase. When Rome conquered a civilization, they would enact in that place the Roman way of life. And they brag, you know, they say winners get to like dictate history. They would be like, oh, this beautiful peace, Pax Romana. Look at this. Look at this empire. There's never been such peace in the world. But if you cross us and you don't live the Roman way of life, we're going to kill you. That's what they did. That was peace that was manufactured by empire. Peace instituted by fear and assimilation. You have to live this way or else. So yeah, this was peace for those who would conform to the Roman way of life, and it was death to those who disrupted the status quo. Jesus came to speak in the midst of Roman-occupied Israel. Jesus came to speak of a new way of life, made possible for those who would be found in him through his death and resurrection and the sending of his spirit to inhabit his people. And if we look at that John 10, 10 verse, it speaks of having life and life to the full. And here's the beauty of this new way of life that Jesus is instituting. He did not come uh, to offer us just enough to get by in this life. 
We don't live on rations of glory, but we have the fullness of glory living in us. We are being transformed from one glory to another as we behold the face of our mighty God, the one who conquered not the Roman Empire, but the principalities and powers that made it possible for the Roman Empire to even exist. He didn't declare war on humanity. He came to set free humanity. It's different. That's why when the disciples are always confused, they think they're going to have this warrior King David who's going to storm. Some people believe that Judas actually went and like sold Jesus out because he thought that it would institute the civil war, basically. He's like, I got to get this thing going, man. Jesus is taking too long. And he's immediately... When, when Peter cuts off, and Peter's ready to roll, man. You need a Peter in your life. He's just like, hey, we're going. We're going. Cuts a guy's ear off. Jesus puts it back on his head. That's a crazy story that we never talk about. And then he's like, all right, you can arrest me. We're not doing it that way. And the guilt that Judas probably felt in that moment was stemming from, I, I didn't know this man. I didn't know him. And a lot of times I think that might be us, where we think Jesus is this warrior God who's going to fight and, you know, we're going to win the culture war. And we're going to do all this thing. But what does Jesus do? Read Philippians 2. Humble yourself and let me be exalted. Be willing to die. And God will get his glory. That's the good news he talks about. It's agonizing, but it's free. It is freedom for those who take it in. Interestingly, we get a glimpse of this reality when uh, Jesus sends out the, depending on your translation, 72 or 70. Um, there's a nerdy thing in there that we're not touching, but I'll talk to you about it some other time. Uh, he sends out the 70 or 72 to uh, proclaim the same message that Jesus had been gospeling. Basically, time for the things that were wrong to be set right. And they returned to him, fired up, saying this, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. And Jesus' response to them is telling, yes, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you, but don't rejoice. Listen to this. But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. Don't exalt in your abilities, but exalt in the one you belong to. It is by his might that we have been made right with God and called friends of Jesus Christ and children of God. Amen? Amen. It is by his might. So don't exalt in the fact that these spiritual gifts that will inevitably come out of the people of God come out. Rejoice in the fact that the living God is among us and he's active and he's working and he's doing mighty things still in our day. This 
is significant for us as the church today. And the Lord gave me this little phrase. What does this mean for us? As Jesus did, we do. As Jesus did, we do. We too proclaim the good news of Christ coming and his return. We testify that a light has dawned and darkness has not overcome it. The good news is that the kingdom of God is here and its expansion is inevitable. We too push back against the work of Satan and partner with Jesus in ushering others into his marvelous light. Where things are broken, we help in restoration and healing. Where things are dead, we help in ushering life. Where things are hopeless, we bring good tidings of hope. And as we yoke ourselves to his easy and light burden, we aid in the unburdening of those who are being crushed by undue pressure and expectation placed on them by their fellow man. And lastly, we wait on the Lord. The band can come back up. There's two verses that talk about this waiting And what a time to wait. There's no better time than Advent to practice this waiting. One's Isaiah 40, 31. Wait on the Lord and he'll renew your strength. The other comes in Exodus 14, 14. Talking about, you know, Moses is standing at the shores. Israelites are like, why'd you bring us out here to die? What's awesome about this story is God moves from in front of the camp to the back of the camp and he stands in between them and Egypt and to the Egyptians it's darkness all they can see is darkness but to the Israelites it's a great light that shines forth and illuminates the path forward it's it's a crazy story The mighty God comes and stands in between the enemy and his people. And he defends them while simultaneously giving action to his people. And it's funny that in Exodus 14, 14, Moses says this to the people. The Lord will fight for you. I would say the Lord was already fighting for them. But it's still a statement of faith. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. You need only be still. And immediately, this moment of stillness, in comes God's voice. And he goes, what are you doing? Raise your hands. And the seas begin to part. And they make their way through. in a powerful way that's undeniable, an indictment on the powers of Egypt and the evil that existed there. And it results with praise. Mighty, the mighty work of God stirs praise in his people. He's still working. He's still mighty. He's still worthy of praise. So today, church, when there are moments, let me start by saying this. We 
expect God to move in mighty ways because it's who he is. We shouldn't be afraid in our prayers to call upon the mighty name of God. We shouldn't be afraid to say, God, come do something that only you can do. But that's only the first step of the, the, the equation. That's not the, the right sentence, but you know what I'm saying. That's the first step. The second step is when he moves, we're the ones saying, God did that. God did that. We identify ourselves as the people of God because when God moves, when he does stuff that affirm his character and being, we're the people who stand up and say, yes, you did that. And sometimes by his spirit, he gives us the grace to have miracles go through us because Jesus did it. Jesus did mighty works. Everything he said in that Isaiah 61 passage, he did. And so today is at the church, I don't, I'm not interested in fighting a culture war. I'm not saying we bury our heads in the sand or we say, hey, it's all good. Peace, peace, where there's no peace. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we call on the name of the Lord to come and do a mighty work in our day, in our city, in our land. And when he does it, we stand up and testify. We're not at war with people. We're not at war with people. We have power. Like he said to his disciples when they came back, we have power over darkness. But we know that that power comes from him. And so when he asks us to do stuff, we do it. But we never cease in asking him to do mighty work. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to do what Moses said. We're going to be still, be still and wait. And we're literally going to wait for like 60 seconds, 90 seconds. I don't know. It's, so just buckle in. I'd invite you to close your eyes. Think of one thing in your own life. One thing in this city, in this nation, that you need Jesus, the mighty God, to come in on your behalf and do something. And when you get that thing in your head, just wait. thing 
possible. Maybe not even possible, the impossible things, the perceived impossible things in our lives. Would we be a people of faith that believe that he's not only a God who hears, but he acts on the behalf of his people. He's doing mighty things today. I believe he's doing mighty things in this room right now. So whatever it is, whatever, whatever the response is after this, if it's just standing up and praising and saying, yeah, God, you can do that. Or maybe he did something in that moment. He broke something in that moment where now you just respond in praise. Maybe that's the action. Maybe he's prompting you to come up to the altar and linger a little bit longer, wait a little bit longer on him find someone on our prayer team. Have them pray over you. Zephaniah 3.17 I think it's Zephaniah 3.17 talks about he's a mighty God. A mighty warrior is in your midst. And he's doing a work of salvation. And I'm not talking eternal salvation for your person that you get to go to heaven someday. He's bringing salvation into your life right now in an area that needs it. And he does it by singing and dancing over his children, exalting over us. So maybe you just need to sit during this next song and as you read the lyrics would you hear the voice of God declaring those things over you I am the God who saves and I am coming I love that come on that's the right response to when the warrior God comes with victory joyful laughter out of the mouth of children. I'm going to read a prayer and then we're going to worship. And I just invite you to move however you want, whether it's coming to the front, going to someone for prayer, or just standing up and worshiping with a heart full of faith, knowing that the warrior God is in our midst. Stir up your power, O Lord, and with great might come among us. And because we are sorely hindered by our sins, let your bountiful grace and mercy speedily help and deliver us through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. Let's worship.